Welcome back to Pinchpreneur. This is Dave and Eli. We're excited to have Matt Spoke with us today, CEO and founder of Moves Financial. Matt, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, super excited to be here, guys. Thanks for, for having me on. Yeah, so and Matt, you know, we usually, before we get into the nitty gritty stuff, we'd like to just, you know, learn a little bit about your background and the guests, you know, what led them to what they're doing today and, you know, go as far back as you want and give us a little bit of background on yourself and then we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. I mean, my my background's not the most thrilling if you go back too far. I mean, I studied accounting at the University of Ottawa, never really saw myself becoming an entrepreneur, went a pretty traditional route out of school into a big four accounting firm. I think pretty early in, in that part of my career, I realized that I had made a mistake. Sort of makes me think of uh, that scene from Arrested Development where Will Arnett's are like, I've made a big mistake. At this point, I'm committed to working at Deloitte. I'm committed to my CPA. And so I put in the time to finish that. I was there for three, four years before I wanted to sort of figure out what was next for me. I didn't really have a particular skill or passion that I wanted to pursue other than the skills that I developed in sort of public accounting at that point. So my first thought was I'd go back to school and sort of reset and explore new opportunities. And, you know, that was a process of going to look for what types of programs and schools could I apply to. Spent a couple of months just diving into the possibility of doing an MBA. It just so happened that early in my time at Deloitte, I also happened to just develop an early interest in Bitcoin. And it was not had nothing to do with my job and nothing to do with what I was looking for in school. I never really thought of it as anything more than just a weird online hobby. And uh, right before I left the firm at Deloitte to go and pursue what I thought was going to be an MBA because I had gotten into the schools that I wanted to and I was going to move overseas to go do that program, Deloitte sort of approached me and said, hey, we're hearing a lot about crypto and Bitcoin and you've been talking a lot about this internally and we're thinking about building up a team internally. Our clients are asking questions. This is you know, 2014 or so at this point. And we don't have anybody who knows anything about this space. Would you like to join our innovation practice report to, we had a, an executive at Deloitte at the time, uh, the chief innovation officer. I'm not, I'm not sure if that title still sort of exists at Deloitte, but, and they just wanted to build out sort of a research focused team on what their large Fortune 500 clients, particularly financial services clients needed to know about the emergence of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. So. It was interesting enough to sort of get me to change course. I stayed at Deloitte for another couple of years to lead that effort. In that process, I, I started to plug myself in a lot more directly into the startup ecosystem. I was going to events and meeting entrepreneurs and talking to startups that were building technology in that space. And I think that was probably the first time I was really exposed to the idea of entrepreneurship, the idea that you know young people like me, um, you know, maybe 25, 26 years old at that time, could do things as crazy to start a business. And it didn't seem all that extravagant when I met people that in some cases were younger than me doing really interesting things. Uh, so the, you know, the idea started, got seated in my head, but I spent two years at Deloitte leading that effort. And Deloitte gave me a lot of interesting flexibility to go and build a team and hire people and, uh, and spend a lot of time doing non-traditional things for a relatively traditional firm. But ultimately, I got interested and excited enough in an industry that Deloitte wasn't really going to invest in. They wanted to better understand it, but it was a pretty like far stretch from their core business. So I left the firm in 2016 to start a business in the cryptocurrency industry and uh, built that for about three and a half years until the end of 2019. So, you know, that period of time, a lot of people would remember was a pretty wild ride for anybody who stepped into the crypto industry at that time. And uh, it was that experience for me as well. I mean, I built a, a business without a real 
a real clear idea of what we were building or why we were building it. There was just a lot of hype around the technology and we hired some really smart engineers and we were, you know, the way I sort of view it is we were tinkering with sort of some cutting edge stuff, but we didn't really have a product or a customer or a problem in mind that we were solving. But it was sufficient at that time to raise pretty significant sums of money to hire a really significant sized team. I mean, and by end of 2018, we were 100 employees. We had three offices in three countries. Uh, we had raised about $65 million at that time. And now I look back and it sort of seems all pretty artificial because <laughs> I now know the realities of building, let's call it a, a real business in a real industry. And uh, long story short, by the end of 2019, things had started to cool down. What we were building did not find sort of a footing in the market. We were we were trying to compete with protocols like Ethereum and other cryptocurrency protocols that were sort of getting popularized at that time. And at some point, the writing was on the wall that that it was ultimately going to make make it long term. So, end of 2019, I wound that business down and spent the first few months of 2020 sort of figuring out what I wanted to do next. And uh, earlier that year, I had a, a really unique opportunity to go on this trip in uh, Ethiopia, of all places, with a, a charity uh, that I was starting to pay attention to. And one of the guys on the trip with me was the first employee at Uber, a guy named Ryan Graves. There was 20 of us on this trip. We spent a week together in like the backs of Jeeps in Ethiopia. And I didn't know who he was. We And just in the process of spending that week with him, I realized he was not only the first employee, he was the first CEO at Uber. Travis had hired him to be CEO before Travis decided to be CEO himself. And so he was there the entire time. He was uh, he ended up becoming effectively their COO for their global business for the first 10 years of Uber. And um, I left that with like a real deep appreciation for what they had built, but also just curiosity to better understand what was going on in the gig economy and sort of what the current state was. At this point, he had stepped down from Uber. Things had changed. They had switched CEOs. The leadership team was changing. And coincidentally, 2019, for people who sort of follow our industry, was a really meaningful year for the gig economy in the sense that it was the first time that legislators in the U.S. were starting to ask questions about the employment status of these workers. You know, should they be allowed to be classified as independent contractors, or should they be forced into like employment classification, which would have all sorts of interesting impact on the, on these businesses on Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and others. So. You know, long story short, that got me down this path of trying diving in. And when it came time to figure out what do I want to do next, I just had already sort of scratched at that enough that I felt that there was an opportunity to go build a business in this space. So, yeah, hopefully that wasn't too drawn out of an answer to your question, Eli. But uh, yeah, that's what got oh, me. That, that was that was awesome. I, I have like a few different things I'd like to frankly better understand about that. A few of those points, just on the on the business in the cryptocurrency space that got to that size and so on. And that sounds like it was quite a roller coaster ride. What was, you know, you mentioned you had, you know, not a clear enough or focus, but, you know, what was the product? Was it itself a cryptocurrency or, yeah. or uh, you know, an exchange or what, what was it? Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't want to completely diminish the work that we did. It was, a, it was a lot of people working for a lot of years to build what we built. So, and I'll say, Technically, and from an engineering perspective, it was a really interesting technology stack that we built. We built an alternative, you know, without getting too into the weeds, an alternative to Ethereum. We built a, a smart contract, layer one, blockchain protocol, the premise of which was that you could build this idea of like interoperable blockchain applications where you could have decentralized applications sitting on Ethereum that could communicate with applications sitting on other blockchains. And we would sort of participate in like the routing of this information between different networks. And I don't, I don't mean to say that what we built was completely, you know, off the market. I think 
to a large extent, the cryptocurrency market is still looking for some killer use cases. It's still looking for sort of its breakthrough into the mainstream. And a lot of this underlying infrastructure that, that companies like us were building assumed that there was this sort of influx of demand just waiting to show up. And, you know, we we never really had turned our mind to, you know, what is that demand and who is that customer and what is the problem they want to solve? We were all building towards this like theoretical idea of a future where online finance happens outside of banks. And we had to build the rails for this online finance to take place. And we had an approach to that that was, uh, you know, in, you know, quite frankly, in 2016, when we started building it, there might have been a dozen or two projects that would be direct competitors to us across the world that were also sort of pursuing relatively similar thesis, but different approach. You know, in hindsight, what I know a little better today in building our product today is that we were not really building a product. We were building a tech stack that had not really well, uh, had, had not defined what the product was. We didn't know who our user was going to be or why they would come to us or, you know, in what use cases they would sort of like apply our technology. So, but the crypto industry being what it was, we had a publicly traded cryptocurrency sitting on top of this network. And uh, we benefited from sort of the macro market environment that we were in. So, you know, not only did we raise money denominated in Bitcoin and Ether at a time when Bitcoin and Ether were going up. So our balance sheet month over month kept going up. You know, we'd spend money and we'd have more money the next month than the prior month. And that was a pretty unique situation to be in as an entrepreneur. I, th- I think it, you know, frankly taught us a lot of wrong lessons that, you know, discipline and financial management were sort of unimportant. But also we had an asset that was trading in the public crypto markets that was also generating a huge amount of attention and and the price of that asset was completely decoupled from users or real financial metrics or real sort of underlying product metrics. And so it's a distracting environment to be an entrepreneur. And, that, and I'll say like in hindsight, being a first-time entrepreneur in that, in that industry, very easy to get distracted by you know, vanity, uh, the vanity of a, so a ticker price that goes up and down every day or you know, the, the, how quickly people were making money on effectively very little substance. And I almost had to relearn a lot of lessons when I started my second business. So, Matt, it's, it's one thing to, to leave a corporate job to become an entrepreneur. It's, it's an additional layer when you're you know leaving a, a corporate job that is accounting. You know, the, some of the most you know conservative you know fact based people to a absolutely new industry that like was at its complete infancy. Right. So that must have been a wild ride. Well, my question is. How did you learn all this stuff as an accountant, you know, <laughs> getting up to speed on like extremely technical stuff? Like I saw that you were involved in Singularity University. Like, did you go through that program? Like, were there some other resources you tapped into? Sorry for interrupting. No, I just like really wanted to kind of figure that out. Yeah. I mean, I look at all of the above. I, like, I'll, I won't pretend that I became like an in-depth technical expert in this industry. I mean, I definitely understood conceptually what was being built. And I could be very, you know, I could definitely show you a pretty detailed architecture of a system that we were designing. I could not write you a line of code. I was fortunate early on to have actually one of the first people I hired into my team at Deloitte. I went out looking for somebody that would be like effectively a CTO in the context of this like internal team and found somebody that had previously spent a bunch of years building trading software for sort of public equity markets and then had been spent a year or two building a Bitcoin trading exchange before sort of the, some of these other cryptocurrencies sort of got popularized and very like deeply technical engineer that became my co-founder when I, when I eventually started that business. 
that, you know, when we had an idea, he could effectively map out how to execute on it. But the earlier question around like how I made that leap, I, I mean, it was definitely not one day to the next. There was definitely some progressions in the middle that felt like the risk spectrum was sort of evolving. Like when we first left Deloitte, the premise was that we were going to build blockchain crypto infrastructure geared towards the enterprise market that wanted to start exploring this technology. Eventually, we realized that trying to sell this concept into like large enterprises was a, was a very difficult thing. Like we did some early prototypes and proof of concepts with the Toronto Stock Exchange, with the five major banks. So we had some success early on. They were all interested enough to dabble with a company like ours, but they weren't really like meaningful long-term clients or contracts that we could build a business around. And then eventually we sort of, so we had sort of taken a half step into the industry at that point. And then the next real step was like, hey, if it's not going to come, if the innovation is not going to come from the banks sort of rethinking their tools, then it's going to come from new companies offering sort of competing financial services. And let's go figure out how to onboard those types of customers. But uh, yeah, I mean, in, in hindsight, it, it doesn't really make a ton of sense. But, you know, I wasn't really an accountant from the traditional sort of risk perspective. And I knew that pretty quickly. But so, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's a really interesting story. So now you're doing Moves Financial, right? And it's business around the gig economy and supporting the gig economy. So what got you interested in that? Uh, you know, what is your goal with Moves? And, you know, just tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, and it, it sort of carries off of that same starting point of being in, in, active in the crypto industry. Like the one thing that really got me excited about that industry, to segue into your question, Eli, is there was this underlying premise that systems of value online could be owned collectively by their users, right? And so if you think of Bitcoin fundamentally as a payment system or a you know a system of money, it's unique in the sense that it's a payment system that is owned by the people who hold the money, right? So it's sort of like the equivalent of a visa was owned by its cardholders. And that concept translated to most cryptocurrency projects that were being built. There was projects being built around, you know, voting governance systems where owning coins was effectively a right to vote, or there was systems being built around sort of consumer software where you could give people these tokens as almost as loyalty points. Uh, but owning these points meant you were effectively an equity owner in the underlying system, right? So there was like this pseudo design of like equity versus money. And my original sort of interest in the gig economy while I was still building in that industry was this very theoretical idea of like, what would the gig economy have looked like if it was built on the premise that the drivers and the customers should own the marketplaces? And so if Uber had been built in a time when, you know, cryptocurrency systems or Web3 as it sort of became known, was popularized. Maybe Uber would have designed itself such that its most active users were effectively part of the ownership structure. And there wasn't really an obvious way to go to market and build a competitor to Uber. I think the like network effects and distribution that they had at that point were already pretty entrenched. But it got me interested in, has anybody tried doing this? Has anybody tried giving ownership to, in our context, workers and we looked into it early on. We found out that Uber had actually run a pilot program. Lyft had done the same thing right before their IPOs to try to bring their top performing drivers into like a stock option plan effectively as a way to like recognize their loyalty and their work. There was a whole bunch of reasons why those programs didn't survive. The SEC had a whole bunch of constraints around that. So my first premise when starting Moves was not, let's go build a banking product for gig workers. It's let's go find a way to make gig workers own the companies that they work for. We sort of reversed our way into this. And this broad concept 
there was some investors, some VC funds in the crypto industry that were building out this, this thesis that they called the ownership economy. It was the idea that crypto was unlocking this ownership economy. So if you were, you know, a user of a, of a popular app, you could own that app among, you know, alongside other users. And that was the first sort of idea. We didn't really know how to back into a product from there, but we're kind of thinking about an economic model that would allow us to buy pieces of Uber or Lyft or DoorDash and give it to Uber drivers, DoorDash drivers, and, and you know others. So that sort of got us down this path of saying, well, first we got to figure out how do we how do we become a relevant product to this demographic? What are the sort of daily challenges that they face? How can we monetize a product with them so that we can then use some of those economics to fund this broader aspiration? So we sort of stumbled our way into banking and financial services to pursue this this ambition. And we don't do that with crypto naturally. Like we do that, like these companies are public companies. So we do that with fractional stock today where we we do buy and reward our customers in fractional stock of DoorDash and Uber and Amazon as part of this like longer term aspiration. So is, is that the main value prop that's allowing you to acquire users is this fractional ownership concept? And can you just explain exactly how that works? Uh, uh, sure. Are your, your, I guess, uh, pooling stock and then fractioning it out to, to users and just the economic model of it? Yeah. No, and, and so to your earlier question, it's not the primary driver of customer acquisition. I mean, it's definitely something that we're, you know, almost Trojan, Trojan horsing this into our product to educate customers as to why owning stock is an interesting tool for them, why it unlocks new new value beyond sort of economic alignment with these companies. I mean, we've the other way to look at this industry is, you know, from our estimates, the largest workforce in North America that doesn't have an HR department or a labor union representing it, right? So, and so that means nobody's really advocating for like, what are the things that matter to these people? And they don't have a structured way to organize their ideas, their feedback, their sort of like concerns to approach companies like Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash to try to advocate for change, right? So one of the reasons that we think stock is so interesting is that it's a mechanism to effectively engage in shareholder activism. If I give stock to all my customers, I can then say, well, now I represent a group of shareholders and I can submit proposals, I can show up to AGMs, I can sort of make a lot of noise, even though they're you know collectively a small piece of the ownership puzzle. And But that wasn't going to be a narrative that resonated with most Uber drivers. I mean, most gig workers are just looking at, like, how do I make money? How do I make my bills at the end of the week? How do I make sure I don't miss my rent? And so we really realized that in the process of trying to build this concept, we first had to solve problems that were more acute to them. Those problems tended to be around their cash flow. And so today, the product really focuses on like helping them organize and manage their cash flow. This, this is a segment that earns very volatile, unpredictable income, uh, you know, day-to-day, week-to-week, app-to-app, it varies very, very significantly. Most of our customers, and as far as we can tell, most of our target target customer segment works for more than one app every week, right? And so they're, they're balancing their time on Uber, DoorDash, and others to effectively sort of piece together a living uh, because no one, no, no one of these apps is sort of like well-suited to fully serve them as, as a worker. And so we wanted to help them, one, organize that complexity. You know, they have multiple sources of income. In some cases, that was getting deposited into multiple accounts. None of these companies were really setting themselves up to help a driver plan its long-term financial health or, you know, their retirement plans or anything that was beyond just like get paid today, get paid this week. And then from there, we also realized that like income volatility was a big issue. So we we started focusing on building out like a cash flow 
liquidity tool. So we have a cash advance product that effectively allows them to like bridge the gap between like interruptions in their pay so that they can reliably sort of make expenses if uh, something goes wrong with their earnings effectively. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so what about when you're just to define when we're talking about gig economy, you know, a lot of people will think, you know, Uber drivers, DoorDash, things like that. But we're also referring oh, like to, you know, freelance writers, for example, or these kind of gigs like Upwork, Fiverr. Is that also the kind of people you see or is it really focused on the apps that we most know, like Uber and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, so specifically, like we have 21 apps that we sort of directly support. The big ones would be the ones you'd expect, Uber, Instacart, DoorDash. The smaller ones, you know, are similar in the sense that the majority of them are either rideshare, food delivery, grocery delivery, parcel delivery, you know, apps that I would say generally are not specialized skills required. You know, if you think about an Upwork freelancer, generally it's like, oh, I have a skill, like I'm a photographer or I'm a designer or I'm a content writer and I can sell that service on the back of sort of qualitative feedback from prior customers, right? So I have reviews and I have sort of customer testimonials and all these things that sort of help me sell my service. The other thing that's sort of unique about those freelance markets is that generally speaking, the freelancer sets their own rate and their own price based on that qualitative sort of portfolio that they have. Gig workers don't, don't have that, right? So that where we would draw the line is, do you set your own rate? Does the customer ordering that service care who is delivering the service? Like when you're ordering a burrito on DoorDash, you're not selecting the driver you want it to come from. You're just saying, first driver available, bring me the burrito, right? So in that context, these they're a lot more commoditized. And the dependence that they have on these marketplaces is a lot more significant. Like a freelancer could theoretically start a relationship with a client and then move that relationship off of Upwork. That's very difficult for an Uber driver to do that just because of the distribution and the, the nature of the service that they're providing, right? So, you know, where we think our sweet spot is, is finding that freelancer because, yes, in theory, they are freelancers or independent contractors, but that has this real deep dependence on these marketplaces. They can't really operate this service without these marketplaces because that creates this, this dynamic where, and that's why this is the segment that's been so contentious for policymakers there's general agreement that freelancers in the traditional sense should not be classified as employees. If you're a designer on Upwork, nobody's advocating for Upwork treating you as an employee. But a driver on Uber, there's this contentious sort of gray area where it's like, oh, they have a lot where they rely on Uber to provide them a living, but they theoretically are independent enough where they go drive for a lift, right? So those are the, the customers. And we think, you know, that segment we call gig workers, but obviously, you know, there's a lot of terms that overlap depending on the context. Can you talk to us a bit more about how you're building moves in terms of the key decisions along the way, as far as the team composition and capital raising? Are you VC back? How have you gone up about your different fundraises? And kind of how do you see that evolving in the near term? Yeah, no, it's a good question. So, well, one thing I learned since starting moves is raising VC money in a business like this is very different than raising VC money in crypto. And nobody's throwing $50 million checks at us for... Uh, <laughs> for, um, you know, hype. But yeah, we are VC-backed. I mean, our current lead investor is Omer's Ventures out of Toronto. I'd say at the core of our product is a banking offering. And so to build that banking offering, we need to be able to partner with a bank in the U.S. We're operating in the U.S. market for context. And the entry point is that you need to have a certain amount of capital available to even start that process. So it's tough to get into, you know, what you might call neobanking or challenger banking. If you don't have a, a certain amount of capital available to you, the banks just don't want to touch 
companies that are not seemingly well-established. So, you know, there's an entry point where we would raise a small amount of capital from a VC perspective, but sufficient to give our bank partners confidence that we're here for a good period of time. Is it public knowledge who your U.S. bank partner is? Yeah, it, it, it is. It's on our website. I mean, so um, there's a network of partner banks that are pretty commonly working with fintechs. I mean, we're with a bank out of Virginia called Blue Ridge Bank. Yeah, some they they all sort of similarly are like regional, small to mid-sized banks generally that are looking at this as like new channels to acquire deposits effectively. So yeah, under the hood for us is a is a bank, also a broker, a broker dealer on the on the sort of fractional stock side. But the bank is really core to our product. That's what allows you to offer the credit product. Well, yes and no. I mean, yes, from the perspective that like the rails through which we move that money is in our own accounts, right? So a customer cannot get access to our cash advances without banking with us. We fund it to their card. They spend it on their move through their moves account. But all of the actual credit exposure and the adjudication is all on us. Like the bank is not the one underwriting that credit. We are. And so that's generally speaking, like the product is unique in the sense that it's not a consumer loan. Like it's a merchant cash advance. We treat our customers as small businesses. In the, for, for the purpose of this product, where these are accounts receivables that they've yet to receive, right? So they get paid by Uber as a client. Uh, it's an account receivable. We're factoring that receivable effectively. So that product we build and, and we adjudicate and we sort of manage the risk and the, the defaults. Where the bank comes in is that we collect through the, the, the fact that they deposit their pay with us and then we fund through their card as well. So they spend on their moves card. Yeah, interesting. That makes sense. That was going to be one of my questions. Does this fall under consumer or business regulation. Yeah, it, it's blurry. I mean, like legally speaking, these are small businesses, unincorporated small businesses to us and to, you know, any regulator looking at this. So they get 1099 filings that they have to do to report their income, they have to remit their own taxes, they have to deduct their expenses. They're checking accounts with us and their debit cards are business debit cards and the product on the advance side is a merchant or business cash advance. The reality, though, is as you look at the behavior of this segment, is that they don't distinguish between consumer or personal and business expenses. They're all blended and blurred together, which is partially the product opportunity for us is to help them segregate and categorize their lives between personal and business so that they can make sure that they're not missing you know, allowable deductions for taxes and things of that nature. And so we're building this right now, in fact, where you'll be able to categorize your expenses within your account to say, hey, was this a personal expense or a business expense, things of that nature, because they, they really don't distinguish. I mean, a very common would be like finishing a shift on your way to the bar so that you could afford beers that night, right? So it sort of like fills in the frequency of having to earn just to like pay for your lifestyle effectively. So we think that's one big opportunity. Like I don't foresee gig workers having a personal account and a business account. I think it'll always be a blended account where we just help them sort of segregate and categorize based on what the nature of the earning or the expense was. Matt, with interest rates having risen so much lately and, you know, talk of recession, how do you think that might affect gig workers and by extension your business? You know, are people going to spend less on Uber and DoorDash potentially? And at the same time, there's going to be more labor available. So it's going to be kind of a tough supply and demand. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. We, haven't, we haven't seen it other than, than uh, you know, we hear people worrying about it and talking about it a lot. And there's been a lot of headlines about, you know, an influx of new supply, just people being unemployed, looking to gig work as, as an alternative. The reality is that most of these marketplaces gate 
new supply from joining when they feel like they have sufficient supply in the market. So if you want to sign up, let's say for Uber in New York City, you'll be on a three-year wait list to be allowed to join as a driver. Like they, when they have the right supply in place, they won't allow new supply in. And they do that in part to protect the earning capacity of their existing drivers, right? Because if they just flood these markets, then they would lose their best drivers who would just start seeing themselves competed out of the marketplace, right? So I think once you're in and the market starts to change, there's a certain amount of protection that the big marketplaces sort of build into their, their onboarding processes. The consumer spending side, again, we haven't seen any real evidence to the fact that anything has changed, but I'll say we're a drop in the bucket. I mean, we represent a really small share of this market today. So it might just be that we're not representative enough of the overall market to really have noticed that trend. The reality is like we need to be acquiring tens of thousands of gig workers in a market that has millions. And so I think there will always be tens of thousands available to us that are earning well, that are sort of continuously doing this type of work. And then on the on the the sort of like consumer behavioral side, I mean our best read is that some of the habits that were formed during COVID have really been entrenched. And, and particularly on food delivery, I think some of the habits that people now have around DoorDash and Uber Eats and Grubhub and others, I think these are pretty well entrenched. And maybe people have started to pull back a little bit on their budgets. But you know, if you compare what you're spending today on DoorDash versus what you might have been spending in 2019 on DoorDash. My suspicion is you'd be spending more today than in 2019, even though you might have spent more in 2021. So it might have come down a little bit, but I think the trend is still generally pointing towards like there's demand for these services. Yeah. Your suspicion is accurate, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm spending more. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, the future of the gig economy, but also for, for your company. You know, like you say you're operating in the US right now. Is it, uh, you know, plans of expanding into other markets? Is there barriers to that? Is it because it's a financial product? What are the your sort of pros and cons of expanding it beyond the US? I mean, we started testing our product in Canada before we had built out sort of the banking rails. We had, in fact, a loan product in the Canadian market in April of 2020, right when the pandemic sort of hit North America. And the first version of that was a bridge 90-day, no principal, no interest payment loan for Uber and Lyft drivers who had seen demand for their service sort of like evaporate when people got forced into lockdown. Um, mm. And it was a pretty big leap of faith. We lost a ton of money, but the idea was that we figured gig workers were going to be pretty quick and resilient to find their next source of income. We didn't know how long these lockdowns were going to last, but we knew that people that were earning on Uber, their income effectively disappeared sort of one day to the next in mid-March 2020. So we spent about a year in the Canadian market iterating on that. We started noticing that the shift was from rideshare towards food delivery. Then one of the associated shifts was away from cars towards e-bikes and bicycles. So we built a financing product, uh, very, very scrappy, but we effectively wanted to finance the e-bike purchase for a gig worker that couldn't get into a $2,500 e-bike purchase. And so we partnered in one market in Toronto with an e-bike distributor downtown Toronto that had a lot of sort of Uber Eats and DoorDash type people sort of coming to their store. In fact, they had a they had a buy now, pay later uh, partner, but generally the segment that we were serving wasn't qualifying for the product. So they would show up to buy an e-bike and they weren't qualifying for a number of reasons. And so we'd effectively told the store, like, call us if an Uber courier shows up. And at that point, we were sending an employee to the store every time an Uber courier showed up, say, go meet mm -hmm. them. And like, let's try to adjudicate them like manually and in person and shake their hand and 
Uh, and we did maybe, you know, 150, 200 loans or something like that in that sort of category of e-bike financing. Realized that it was going to be a tough business model to scale because you would need to have sort of effectively a retail partner in every market. And there wasn't really a well-established national brand. And at some point, the realization was that for us to build a uh, relatively performant loan or advanced product, we would really need to be embedded into their earning flow, right? Like where their where their deposits were going. And the only way to do that was going to be to go into banking. And so when we decided to go look at what would it take to build a bank account, the Canadian market, for one, it's a lot more complex. The vendor landscape of who would provide the right type of infrastructure and tools was just not as developed in Canada versus the U.S., and then we knew it was going to be a pretty significant investment. And so then it sort of made sense to question what market should we make this investment into? Because once we make this investment, like we're sort of tying ourselves to that jurisdiction for a while. And so mm-hmm. we decided to make the switch to the U.S. at the beginning of 2021. And, and, uh, and at, you know, at that point, we sort of put Canada on pause. I think eventually we'd love to sort of evaluate other markets. But the reality is we've got 100x opportunity in front of us in the US without having to think about crossing a border. But, you know, it's hard to predict when that might change. And so, you know, this is relatively a broad question, but, you know, what what other types of services are geared towards gig economy and gig workers outside of, you know, financing and banking and stuff like that? Is there a lot of companies popping up within the ecosystem? There's a few. I wouldn't say there's a lot. There are a few. We knew, we all know each other quite well at this point. And, and in some cases, we're competing. In some cases, we're sort of like cross-promoting each other's products. We sort of view it in two general buckets. I mean, there's how gig workers manage and access their money. And then maybe out of that would be a stream of like other financial services that we could layer on top. And I can tell you a few thoughts that we're, we're sort of exploring in that direction. And the other way is how gig workers manage their work. How they manage their work would sort of imply... You know, they're switching apps in real time while driving their car on the highway to figure out is there better search pricing on Lyft or on Uber at this moment in time. There's ways to facilitate and automate that process that just make their work more seamless instead of having them sort of manually jump back and forth and juggle all these different apps. So there are some opportunities there. There's apps and products that are being built there. We've got some basic tracking tools that help them understand sort of how they're performing across the multiple apps that they're working for. We're building goal-setting tools so they can set goals and sort of track performance across the week. They're, we're sort of dabbling with mileage tracking right now so that they can keep track of their mileage for tax purposes. So these would be things around like sort of how they think about their daily workflow. On the banking side, you know, the next logical steps beyond you know, helping them manage their earnings, helping them get access to small credit would be going down the path of insurance products, other credit products like auto loans, you know, two really common categories would be auto loans and auto insurance. Another really common category would be things like incidental disability, like uh, benefits and insurance products, like accidental disability and death insurance. If you're riding your bike, delivering food and you get hit by a car, DoorDash doesn't protect you in that event, but you might have a family that, you know, is relying on that income. So uh, really small products in those types of areas can go a long way. And so we do think there's a lot of opportunity down that path. And then the other theme that we've been spending a lot of time on, we just went through sort of an early experiment of this in April, is how gig workers think about their taxes, how they estimate their tax liability, how they withhold their taxes from their pay, how they file their taxes. All of that is a pretty complex thing for what is a relatively low-income customer, right? So you know, you think of how 
automated that is if you get a T4 from an employer, you just have to like put a slip in the H&R block, they'll do the rest for you. None of that is automated for you if you're a gig worker. You have to do the math yourself and sort of make the payments yourself. Nobody's withholding off of your paycheck. So these would be areas that we're exploring. Matt, let's talk about customer acquisition for a minute. Talk to us about how you do that. What are your main channels? And how has that evolved over time? Were there learnings there and decisions made along the way? Yeah, I mean, so first hypothesis was maybe there's room for us to partner with the Ubers of the world. And we realized pretty quickly that those types of partnerships and channels were counter to the positioning that we wanted to build for our product. And the positioning was very simple. We wanted to encourage or facilitate a gig working on multiple apps. Uber did not want to do that. Uber wanted to restrict an Uber driver from working on Lyft or from working on DoorDash. And so we saw some fintech products go and partner with the DoorDashes of the world. The trade-off was effectively co-branding or white labeling. It was exclusivity to that channel, not being able to provide that service to another channel. And so pretty quickly, we realized that that wasn't going to be for us. They raised a lot of concerns early on when we were having investor conversations because it was the most obvious customer acquisition channel where you could get access to customers for nearly free. But you know, our pitch in response to that was they would have significantly higher churn because DoorDash customers or DoorDash workers don't stay on DoorDash very long but they might stay in the gig economy very long. They just happen to switch from DoorDash to Grubhub to, Door- to Uber or whatever. So if we could hold on to them for that life, that lifetime versus, you know, so there's a trade-off between CAC and LTV effectively. Like, okay, you get almost free CAC in this strategy, but we get better LTV in this strategy. So which one's, which one's worth more? And uh, so that forced us to start thinking about how do we go direct to consumer to acquire customers? And so there's been a couple of really uh, successful strategies for us. We do really, really well in like basic organic uh, SEO sort of content marketing. There's pretty non-competitive keyword surface area here. You know, if you're an Uber driver and you're looking for a loan, you're going to type in Uber driver loan and not many things are going to pop up on Google. And so it's quite easy to rank for these types of things. And that's driven a lot of like our early you know traffic and organic search. We also partner with influencers and um, influencers in our category are generally also gig workers themselves who either are active on TikTok or on YouTube, and they're generally getting followed by other gig workers. And so there's some of them that have, you know, 100,000 plus subscribers just tuning in to figure, to hear how you, how you manage your day as a DoorDash courier. And it, as niche as it is, it's like a pretty big subculture on YouTube and on TikTok. Uh, so partnering with some of these influencers has been effective. We just recently rolled out a referral program for our customers on the basis that we're assuming that they're active, in some cases, in-person communities that include other gig workers, in some cases, virtual sort of online communities. So you know, I was surprised back in March, I went to LA for a big conference, this may be a big word, but a big gathering of gig workers in LA. Uh, and it was really surprising to me to see how many of them knew each other really well. They were friends. And this was sort of their not only their work, but it was their social life. And some of that also translates into huge subreddit communities for Uber drivers and Facebook groups. And so can we give them a mechanism to spread the word about moves and earn money as, as, a, as an individual gig worker? And then finally, we partnered with companies, you know, instead of partnering with, with Uber, we'd go partner with other companies that were targeting gig workers like us but in non-competitive industries. So, you know, best example of that I could think of is um, we did a partnership with a company called Rapify. Rapify is a car wrapping advertisement network. 
where they put stickers on the outside of your car and they put stickers on the outside of only gig workers' cars to run ad campaigns for big brands that want to run sort of like plastered ad campaigns across the city. So, you know, they'll sell advertisement. And then because of that, they have 400, 500,000 gig workers that have signed up to participate in these campaigns. And so we can market to that list of gig workers effectively, give them another revenue sources and affiliate. And so we've tried to find opportunities like that. We're still learning. We're still dabbling. I mean, we've done a little bit of paid ads here and there, mixed results. Um, but you know, we're still early, early innings to figure out how well some of these strategies scale. I think the challenge is that every one of these strategies has like an upper bound of like how many customers we can rely on on you know that channel for. But yeah, generally going okay. It's awesome. Well, um, this is really great, Matt. It's been awesome to meet you today and get to know you a little bit. Um, yeah, you guys really interesting to kind of get an insight into how you think. Our finishing question is around the future. 10 years from now, what would you hope you know, would have happened by then, either in your business or in your industry more broadly? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer to that is probably the same for our business as much for the industry. I think our opportunity is to like try to make this happen through our product. But the way I see it in 10 years, and, and hopefully sooner than that, a gig worker should have a relationship with work that feels very similar to how an employee engages with work. You know, in this context, I mean, a really, really uh, a simple way of putting it is I don't think a, a gig worker should have to open four apps every day to find opportunities for work on four different apps, right? So the probably easiest analogy that is quite established today is if you walk into a restaurant that had been accepting orders on DoorDash, Skip the Dishes, Uber Eats, you probably a few years ago would have seen them have three or four iPads on the front counter of that restaurant taking orders from these four different marketplaces. And now there's software companies that have effectively streamlined that into a single workflow, right? Where it's like, I know I just got an order from DoorDash, but right under it, I just got an order from Skip the Dishes and right under that from Uber. I mean, I think that's ultimately where this industry's going to end up if we're successful is that a, a gig worker will have a single dashboard for their work. That dashboard will show them offers from Uber as well as offers from DoorDash and offers from Lyft, but they'll be able to manage from a single place. And out of that, it'll feel like they're getting a single paycheck. Uh, even though the source of money is coming from multiple places, it'll feel very seamless to them. They'll get paid in a single way. They'll be able to do things like you know carve out money for their health benefits and, and children's education and, and taxes. So we effectively become this like employer HR wrapping around a gig worker while allowing them to sort of have full control over when and how they want to accept work with parameters that say, you know, I don't want to ride after certain hours of the day, or I don't want to take jobs that pay less than certain dollars per mile, or, I, you know, whatever those parameters are, we'll start to give them information to be able to make those types of informed decisions. And, you know, ultimately, we think it probably ends up benefiting the gig economy more, more broadly, because like one of the biggest wastes in the gig economy today is downtime for gig workers that are between rides waiting for the next offer. If you're only on Uber, there's often quite a bit of dead time, depending on what market you're in. Whereas if you can plug that dead time with a DoorDash offer or a Lyft offer, you can optimize sort of the gig workers day in a way that I think is just healthier for sort of the you know supply demand equilibrium of the gig economy. So, I mean, that would be our hope. Uh, there's lots, <laughs> lots that would have to happen for that to happen. And then over that 10-year period as well, we expect that there'll be pretty significant legislative changes, some of which have already started to happen, but we think more are coming. I mean, both the federal and probably half the states in the US have already indicated they're 
intent to go revisit rules around gig worker employment law. And we just need to be able to sort of adjust that those rules sort of play out. Quick follow-up on that. Historically, Uber and Lyft, et cetera, would be competing on both sides of the marketplace, right? They'd be competing for uh, people who want an Uber ride, but they're also competing to find drivers. And that kind of future that you just outlined for us, it kind of takes one side of the market and just makes it hyper-efficient and no longer something they really you know, compete for and try and build a mode around. They just become entirely consumer-facing. And in the back end, uh, you know, a company like yours would just be putting all these orders out. Am I thinking about that correctly? It kind of fundamentally changes how they compete. Yeah, you are. I mean, like this is the other way I've been framing it when I talk to VCs is sort of unbundling this concept of a double-sided marketplace and saying, hey, we'll, we'll build one side, you build the other. Naturally, there's no way to do that without a lot of pushback and hostility from these companies because it's a huge part of their, their, their margins are sort of built inside of that, that market arbitrage. I mean, one of the things that you can use as sort of an anecdote to explain this, and I, I saw this firsthand when I was in LA a couple months ago, is DoorDash will put out an offer for a ride to get delivered, let's say at $4.50. If nobody accepts that ride, they'll put that same offer back out at $7 to make sure it gets, it gets accepted. They're betting on the fact that there's going to be some inexperienced driver who takes it at $4.50 so that they don't have to pay $7 for the delivery, right? So the more experienced drivers know how to play that game. They know how to wait for the offers to get to a place where they feel like they're in the money. The less experienced drivers are often taking rides that are frankly at a loss to them after you factor in sort of, you know, things like the cost of gas, the depreciation on their vehicle, whatever. They're barely making a living. If you know, there's definitely been lots of articles written about how gig workers don't necessarily make minimum wage, and it's generally skewed to this like inexperienced driver. So, a lot of the margin generated by companies like DoorDash and Uber, you know, not explicitly but implicitly, is built on this unsophisticated driver who's willing to work at a loss. And you know, at some point, that's unsustainable. If you want to build a workforce here that lasts for the next couple of decades, because I think this is where our original premise started was. Uber and DoorDash never expected that they they built a consumer service marketplace that had to be fulfilled by workers. They never expected that that workforce would become permanent, right? They thought these would be transient people that had spare hours in the day, that had a full-time job and would drive DoorDash two hours at night. What they never accounted for was that people would flood to this as a permanent source of income. And that sort of created all these new social dynamics that they they never built their businesses for, right? So that's what we think probably needs to change over the next decade. And that's where policymakers are stepping in, in some cases in unproductive ways, because they don't fully understand that dynamic, but they're trying to address this imbalance. And so we think that if we can sort of get there with just like a better market equilibrium, it'll be better off. It probably chips away at some of the underlying value of these companies though, if we're successful. Right. Yeah. Matt, thank you again so much for for joining us. This was um, I know we could probably chat for another hour, but uh, you know this was super insightful. Uh, I took a lot from it. You know, Dave said take a lot from it. So again, thank you for joining us, and thanks for the listener for joining us this week. And uh, until next time, this was a fun. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Eli. Thanks, Dave. This was fun.